0: Well, good morning, Calvary Baptist Church family. It's been a few years since I've been with you, and so it's a real pleasure, and I want to thank uh, Pastor Rick for this opportunity to come and dress you on your uh, global Sunday. Weren't those uh, video reports just wonderful news from the, the Patmas and the brewbakers, the Sayers, and, the, and uh, whoever else was there? Your, your church, it's your missions family. In my role as a National President of our Association of Churches, you are part of something much larger than yourselves, whether you recognize that or not. Over 500 churches from coast to coast to coast on any given Sunday, we have churches worshiping the Lord in Victoria, as far north as Yellowknife, out east, uh, Halifax, and everything in between. But in my role as National President, I have the joy to bring greetings to you from your church family and trusting that God is blessing you as a church, as individuals, as we as we have heard from our missionaries, as we seek to be missionaries in our own context, in our own neighborhoods. I trust that you are seeking to be that as well. I brought a pile of material that I'd love to get rid of some of that literature related to things that we collectively as churches are doing overseas or things we're doing through our fair department, which is our Humanitarian Relief Development Justice Uh, chaplaincy ministries. We have chaplains right across Canada, and we also have special francophone ministry in Quebec, church planting, of which Calvary is in partnership with our Saint Hyacinth Church, which is planting a church in Bolloy, just 45 minutes north of Montreal. You are active in that as well, but there's material there I'd love you to go see. On the topic of which I'm looking at today, particularly, I'd like you to draw your attention to our Religious Freedom Watch brochures. I've brought two of the latest editions. This is information related to what's going on on religious freedom and legislation that's going on as we speak in Parliament. If you want to know some, some uh, very interesting things from pastors and lawyers in our fellowship, come, come by the d- table and pick up a couple copies of that as well. I just want us to just ask the Lord's blessing as we uh, enter into His Word. Father... As we have opportunity now to open your word, I pray, Father, that it will not return void. You have a word for each of us, and I pray that we attune our hearts now, that whatever, Father, through the ministry of your Spirit, you convict us to proceed from this place, to, to do this day, this week, Father, that we will, in fact, be bold enough and yet humble enough to act on it for your glory and our great good we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. So starts the very famous book, A Tale of Two Cities, by Charles Dickens. This last year, we have seen some of the best of times. I really appreciated Graydon's message on that video to be encouraged. God is doing a new thing, and we have seen gospel advance this year in significant creative ways on platforms we never thought possible even 10 months ago. But it's also a difficult time, maybe not the worst of times, but a difficult time where gospel advance is being thwarted because of the secular drift that seems to continue that we're witnessing day in and day out in our nation. It's this latter's concern that I really want to address today. And so I warn you ahead time, this is, this is a sobering message. It's an unusual message for a global Sunday, quite frankly, but I'm blaming Pastor Rick because he gave me the topic, okay? It's an area that he has particular concern. Your leaders have particular and I share in that concern, of which, of which I, I imagine many of you do. We live in dark times, and so we look to God's Word for inspiration and guidance. And I turn to Romans chapter 12 and verse 12. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Three subjects. Hope, affliction, prayer. Three actions. Joyfulness, patience, faithfulness. It's I want to take a look at at these three, take a peek at each of these three in the current landscape, the context in which we find ourselves at this time in the history of our nation where hope is fleeting, affliction is ever-present, and prayer is underutilized. Certainly this past year with COVID and the pandemic, we've seen hope as a fleeting commodity in many Canadians' lives. In fact, in a very recent Ipso Read poll, they discovered that 37% of Canadians characterize their lives currently as, quote, desolate, needing hope, desolate. Walker Percy was arguably one of the greatest American literary giants of the 20th century and no one knows his name. But when he died in May of 1990, Time magazine wrote this of Walker Percy. Name another voice in American writing that is as beguiling and civilized as Walker Percy. He was a medical doctor who in midlife in his 40s became an author who would write many philosophical, densely philosophical essays and journals that very few of us would ever read. But he wrote six popular novels. That became famous. His writing consistently tackled the bleakness, the hopelessness of the 20th century, which has now entered into the 21st century. His hopes stemmed from an event that occurred later on in his life when he was converted to Christianity. And although his writing was brilliant and compelling and persuasive, his hopeful orthodox Christian views were the minority view in the mid to late 20th century, no longer in vogue amidst all the war and carnage and disruption of the latter part of the 20th century. The literary establishment, they could not ignore this man's brilliance despite every attempt to do so. But they placed his consistent narrative of hope well behind the bleakness of some literary giants like Hemingway and Steinbeck and Miller. Our culture is increasingly close to the gospel. Have you noticed that? In one of his essays, Percy writes in Lost in the Cosmos, one of the target's favorite themes of his essays was humanity in an, as being orphaned in the cosmos. That humanity is, resembles a castaway on a deserted island who finds a bottle with a message and they open it up and it's in a foreign language that they don't understand. Or like a prisoner who's in an isolation cell who is desperately trying to hear the tap, 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 tap. Message from the prisoner in the next cell adjacent, but he can't quite hear the tap, tap, tap. Walker Percy conceded that ho- the hopeful message of Christianity was no longer the prevalent view in our society amongst the media elites, but by no means did this denigrate or devalue the message. In fact, He says that Christian novelists and Christian teachers and Christian nurses and Christian lawyers and Christian clergy and Christians in general need to speak out with more vigilance into the bleakness in which we find in our society. Hope in the Lord is the foundation which my joy rests upon. And any other foundation ensures a shaky, shifting foundation that will result only in disappointment, discouragement and doubt. Romans 12.12 starts with being joyful in hope, and we, the joyful ones, share this hope openly to a society that knows desolation and bleakness. Unashamed, we advance the gospel which brings hope to hopeless sinners. Paul would write in Romans 1 and verse 16, "'For I am not ashamed of the good, the hopeful news,' about Jesus Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. In the early months of the COVID pandemic, I instructed all of my staff at our national office and across Canada not to contact our pastors and our churches looking for funding for missionaries and the things that we do on behalf of you as churches. We didn't want to bother churches about funding. We just phoned our churches, all our pastors asking, how are you coping? And what's happening after months of this? What's happening? We were so pleasantly surprised of the many stories of COVID conversions talking to a pastor in a small church in Plesséville, Quebec, saying, you know, a police officer who's five hours away started watching us on, online, and he came to Christ. And now I'm discipling him, virtually speaking. I shared these stories in 10 different blogs this past summer. I put out a blog every week, and they're wonderful stories of transformation and conversion. We shared these stories in our latest national magazine this autumn, our Thrive magazine, zeroed in on COVID, limitation or opportunity. This has been an opportunity for significant ministry. We posted a fellowship statement of hope. You can go pick that up at the literature table. Sharing to Canadians, your only hope can be found in Christ with steps of how you can come to faith in Jesus Christ. We thought our ministries across the board would slow down and dry up. But what we discovered is many of our folks in our churches, just ordinary folks, were, the, the, the future trajectory of their careers were being changed because of COVID. They were saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? I just lost my job, or I need to redirect my efforts. And God has just raised up some significant people. We've had a recruitment boom this last year with appointments of eight different international global missionaries from our fellowship churches. 17 brand new fellowship chaplains were appointed in the last eight months. That's that's a record for us as a movement of churches. God's doing a good thing, a new thing. We share this joyful hope Because it is the only hope the world has. We have much to be hopeful for. But Romans goes on to say, we must also be patient in affliction. Several uh, uh, translations refer to this verse as being patient in tribulation. The New, uh, New Living Translation translated, be patient in trouble. It's in the context of this great hope we have in Christ Jesus that we deal with affliction and tribulation, and trouble, because it's inevitable. We live in troubling times. We live in a time when fervent secularism seeks to sanitize society of all vestiges of faith. Any of its influence on society is seen as bad. Our culture is increasingly closed to the values, beliefs, and views of not just Christianity, but all faith groups. And so, woke warriors, critical theorists, seek to crawl back religious freedom rights from good law-abiding Canadians. This is new for Canada, brand new. And although Canada was never a Christian nation, it was foundationally molded on Judeo-Christian ethics. In September 1864, Canada's Fathers of Confederation gathered together to talk about nationhood and agreed that they would call the country Canada. But they couldn't agree on its designation, and so they said, let's retire for the evening. And Sir Leonard Tilley from New Brunswick, whose gravestone uh, actually says his trust was in Jesus. He was reading his Bible in Psalm 72, 8. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth until he was convinced that Canada should be a dominion under God. And the fathers of confederation agreed. Our nation became the dominion of Canada and over the east window of the peace tower in Ottawa is chiseled above that window, Psalm 72, 8, He shall have dominion from sea to sea. As mentioned Canada's never, never truly experienced Christendom, thank goodness. But our nation's foundation was and has been molded by Judeo-Christian ethics. Some espouse that notion is long gone. And the question needs to be asked, when did that stop? And I would suggest that it it was 1982, the year Parliament approved the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the date Canada's Christian heritage drifted revealing a new progressive societal trajectory. And for almost 40 years, we have lived with charter values rather than Christian values, which have been quietly forgotten. I'm not suggesting that our charter and charter rights are a bad thing. They actually make us the envy of the world. Since 1994, the United Nations has categorized Canada as one of the best places to live on earth, and it is! One of those reasons is our charter. But for more than three decades of legislation, we have swiftly seen the removal or the the removal of the tip of the hat to our past Judeo-Christian ethics. That's not all bad. Christendom has never been good for any nation. But there has been a secular trajectory taking place. It has taken root and it is growing with breathtaking speed. Today, indifference to faith has become hostile hostility is more the reality in three decades the ideological shift is unmistaken school prayer was banned in 1988 abortion without legislation uh, legislative protection was instituted in 1988 Gay marriage was institutionalized in 2005 by Bill C-38. Doctor-assisted suicide legalized May 30th, 2016 with further, more progressive revisions to the MAID law being debated right now, and Minister Lemeny wants that passed by December 18th of this year. Unbelievably how quick they're trying to push that one through. Non-binary transgender expression enshrined in the federal human rights code since June 2017 in Bill C-16. The recreational use of weed legalized in July 2018. Our current parliament is debating conversion therapy practice in Bill C-6, which has grave concerns for those who are concerned about religious right freedoms in the near future. What is our response to all of this? What is our response as Bible-believing Christians? Charter values rather than Christian values, are reshaping our nation. Individual rights constantly trump religious rights. We lobby government, we intervene at the Supreme Court, and we continue to lose, lose, lose. It gets disappointing. How are Christians to protest? What should categorize our civil discord? Well, the Apostle Paul has some guidance on this in Romans chapter 13. I encourage you to turn there in your Bibles. It tells us how we should behave with our with civil authorities. But it's in the context of a larger book. The first 11 chapters of Romans really share, shares how we might have a right relationship with God. That being we are, can be justified by faith through His grace. This is the great reformational truth. And then we come to Romans chapter 12. In the first half of Romans 12, in verses 3 to 13, Paul gives guidance on how to have a proper relationship with the family of God. The second half of Romans chapter 12, in verses 14 to 21, he instructs us how to have a proper relationship with those outside of the faith, even with our enemies. And then we come to the first verse of Romans chapter 13 where Paul shares how we can have a proper relationship with our governing authorities. And he says in verse 1 some very, very sobering words. Everyone must submit to governing authorities for our authority comes from God and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So as children, Scripture says we are commended to submit to submit to governing authorities, to our civil authorities. We don't submit only to those who we agree with or whom we agree with their legislative agenda or whether their legislative agenda is God-honoring. We are to submit. There are no qualifiers. There are no conditions to this command. The reason for submission, it goes on in verse 1, is that all authority has been placed there by God. And who are we to second-guess who God chooses to place in authority? Lord has, the Lord has even used evil people and evil nations to accomplish His plans. Verse 2 of Romans 13 makes clear that those rebelling against these civil authority rebel against God as well and should expect punishment. Verse 3 and verse 4 of Romans 13 goes on to state that the primary purpose that God intends for government is to restrain evil and to punish the evildoer and commend and lift up those who do good. So those who pursue good will discover that God's servant, that's how Paul refers to the government, God's servant. How do you feel about that? God's servant. The current government, both federally and provincially, are God's servant, We are to honor uh, honor them, verse 3 says. Those who do wrong, you should fear, verse 3 says. For God's servant, the government, is an agent of wrath and will punish. That's what they're supposed to do. And to do this, verse 5 says, we should be submitting with a clear conscience because it is the right thing to do. Not just it won't get me in trouble, but it is the right. It's what God expects of his children to submit. And then lastly, in verse 6 of the same chapter, he says, go pay your taxes. I don't know why Paul had to put that one in. But even Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So even though you dislike the current government, possibly you do. You must submit to God's servant. Three times in these six verses, the government is referred to as God's servant. You can't get around that one. Verse 7 ends by saying, and give respect and honor to those who are in authority. Whether we agree with the government's legislative agenda, whether we agree with the beliefs or the lifestyle of the politicians in Ottawa or in Toronto, we are to follow these four things. We are, number one, to submit. Number two, pay taxes. Number three, be respectful. And there's a fourth command that Paul gives us in 1 Timothy 2.2. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that you can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity, we are to pray for them. Four behaviors that should characterize our civil discourse with our authorities. But what if my civic leader tells me to stop doing something that God tells me I must do? Do I submit? Do I obey? Or do I follow the example of John and Peter in Acts chapter 4 who are commanded by the Jewish leaders to stop preaching in Jesus' name? In Acts chapter 5, they're brought to the Sanhedrin and the the, the high priest forbade them to preach the good news of Jesus in Jesus' name. And their response in verse 29, we must obey God rather than any human authority. When human authorities tell us not to do something God tells us to do, we do what God says, not what man says. What if my my civic authority tells me to do something that God tells me not to do? Do I submit? Do I obey? Or do I follow the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? We're told in Daniel 3 verse 15 that these three young Jewish leaders are told to bow before a golden idol which obviously violates the second commandment and they would not and they bravely faced a fiery punishment whether the demand is to do something god doesn't permit or not do something god asks you to do our action is the same as bible believing christians i choose civil disobedience and obey god rather than man but just like John and Peter, I disobey, I disobey respectfully. Daniel was respectful. In, we learn in Daniel chapter one, verse eight that Daniel asked permission. He asked permission not to defile himself with the king's rich food. The very act of asking permission infers respectfulness. We're to be respectful. Secondly, when compelled by civil civic authorities to do something God does not permit we are to act like Shadrach Meshach and Abednego I need to be prepared to resist to resist respectfully and possibly accept the consequences which possibly may be a fiery punishment a couple years ago we were appointing a brand new fellowship chaplain to our fellowship cadre and uh, we got a police check as every chaplain has to go get a police check we got a police check we'd never had before she had a record. Years previous, this chaplain had uh, shown civil disobedience. She went to a, an abortion clinic and sought to impede the entrance of those seeking this medical um, uh, whatever. And she paid the consequences by doing jail time. I would only add that by submitting to civil authorities, we're not necessary to do it silently. Submission doesn't mean we never speak up about our civil authorities and the things that they are doing that, quite frankly, violate biblical principles. Daniel rebuked three kings, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and Darius. We need to speak up. We need to sign petitions and send letters and emails, march in lawful, peaceful demonstrations. We're to call out. As, as Christians, we are to be activists for for good in our society to speak out respectfully in the gracious spirit of Jesus always remembering that our government officials are not the enemy they're in fact the mission field Following the Edict of Worms, which was just a great ecclesiastical body in the 16th century, Martin Luther, the great reformer, was called a heretic and was all of his books were going to be burned, and then Princess Frederick secretly took Luther because he feared his his Luther's life and hid him in Wartburg Castle. And it was a lonely time of insomnia and sickness for Luther, but he was working energetically, writing at least a dozen books. He he translated the entire New Testament into the, the the common german language and he also wrote many letters to friends during these early days of the reformation he wrote to one friend spalatin he wrote this now is the time to pray pray with all our might against satan he is plotting an attack on germany and i fear god will permit him because i am so indolent in prayer our final response to this growing secularism, this growing sentiment against biblical values in our country, is not to retreat in hopeless idleness, but to intentionally, fervently pray for our country. Romans says, joyful, Romans 12:12 says, joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and thirdly, faithful in prayer. The 17th century poet. And novelist John Dunn tells the story of some Spanish sailors, explorers, coming into South America for the very first time. They came into the headwaters of the Amazon River. They thought it was just a huge expanse and it was just the continuation of the Atlantic Ocean. They were dying of thirst. They were floating in the largest body of fresh water in the world. But they thought it was salt water, so they never dropped their buckets. And many of these sailors died of thirst. My friends, the scene of men dying of thirst while floating in the world's largest body of f- uh, fresh water is a perfect metato- a metaphor of our day and age. A society thirsty for meaning, dying of thirst, spiritually speaking, but headstrong in their refusal to receive their Savior. Like other favored nations in our world, first nations in our world, we got this way The argument could be made preeminently because of the Christian values that started our nation. Our founding fathers embraced Christian principles and values, and and the nation flourished because Christianity flourished in the first hundred years of our nation. And Christian mission is still floating everywhere in Canada, but millions would rather die of thirst than drink the living water. We need to take Luther's advice and his advice at these times is to pray, and Romans, Paul says at the end of Romans twelve twelve to f- be faithful in prayer. It was a hundred years ago when the center block of the parliament buildings was reconstructed after the great fire of 1916. On July second 1917, then Prime Minister Robert Borden dedicated the center block, and in The center block, there is the great peace tower, which is the great symbol of our democracy. In the construction, Scripture verses were chiseled and inscribed in the peace tower. There are 10 Scripture verses, at least 10 Scripture verses chiseled in different places in the peace tower. Scriptures carved in stone, permanent reminders, accessible for all to see. The very center of our democracy centered in on these Judeo-Christian ethics. And I well imagine today there are MPs who would love to get rid of them. So politically incorrect. I suspect also that during the current renovation that is going on with the Peace Tower, you can't go there right now, it's closed. It's closed for several years. I went online. Do you know what they actually call it? A renovation and cultural rehabilitation that's just bureaucratic speak saying we're getting rid of the bible verses we're rehabilitating because somehow our history is all wrong it needs to be renewed and rehabilitated we must remain vigilant reminding our nation that permanent peace can only be found in christ the largest of the 53 carillon bells that, that ring across Ottawa from the Peace Tower is a bell that is 10,000 kilograms. It's so big that when it was dedicated, they gave that bell a name. The name is Bourbon. And inscribed right into the metal of the bell is Luke chapter 2, verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill to men. And I well imagine there are MPs in Ottawa who would love to melt down that bell because of that scripture verse. But we do not, we will not, let this dissuade us from continuing to ring loud and long and clear the gospel to our nation, displaying Jesus in the spirit of Christian love so brightly that people can't help but see the beauty and the good and the winsomeness of a relationship in Jesus Christ can be. And so, like Paul and like Martin Luther, they call us to pray. This is the answer. We need to pray like we've never prayed before for our nation. Prayer is the answer. And so I want to close this morning and ask you to kindly stand with me. And we're going to pray a prayer together. You'll see it on the screen. Let's share this prayer together. Share with me. Father... Renew and embolden the church in Canada to take its rightful place in our nation so that our nation might take its rightful place in the world. Father, help us, your children, to be salt and light in our country. Enable your children to be examples of your grace, mercy, and love. Our nation's greatest need is spiritual renewal. Father, our plea is that you renew your church, chasten it, revive it again. May your bride become a radiant influence for godliness in our blessed nation. Bend us, break us, do whatever necessary to bring your glory to our shores. For your glory and our great good, in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Thank you for this opportunity. I trust that you're being a missionary on your street in your workplace. Come by the literature table. Come and pick up one of these religious Freedom Watch uh, brochures. I'd love you to know what's going on in our nation and how you can start praying for it. God bless you.